I just realized that Wesleyan was a huge bubble. The ideal vision of my, my creative career, my life, what does that look like? I know so many people who have been unbelievably depressed. Almost half of my paycheck was going to my rent. I mean, expect a, a tough first year. You've just graduated from college. You need to find a job and a place to live, make new friends, manage your money, and set yourself up for success. That's a lot, right? In this podcast, you will hear from recent grads reflecting on their experiences and from experts who will tell you how to do it right. I'm Sharon belden Castingway, Director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University, and this is First Year Out. As a career counselor, I often warn students that the most stressful part of the job search is getting an offer and accepting that first job. It's a huge life transition, but an exciting one too. In mid-August or so, I interviewed um, for a job at a music school called School of Rock, and it was, I did really well. Um, I killed the interview and I got the job, so I started that in September. Um, so really just like a couple months in LA and then I was off on my, um, it's like 35 hours a week, so almost 40 hours, but not, not too, too crazy. So, um, it, it's, you know, a good, it's a good job schedule for someone who's doing a lot of creative stuff as well. Um, so yeah, I started doing that and I'm still working at School of Rock. So I am, um, my title is studio manager. And what I do is um, I deal with all of the communications, all of the marketing, um, billing, enrollment, so like all the front desk stuff. Um, I'm at the front desk checking people in and um, giving tours to, you know, walk-ins, um, showing people around, answering the phone, um, and making sure all of the all of the rooms are intact, all of the lesson rooms and rehearsal rooms are up kept and making sure that uh, instructors have everything they need to to teach the kids uh, rock and roll, which is really fun. So it's sort of, it is an administrative job, but it's really, um, it's very w- well-rounded. I think it's, it feels like, um, like an assistant managing job, even though it's not officially yet. That was Mia Rossi, class of 2014, a musician in L.A. who also works for the School of Rock. Today we're discussing how to succeed in your first job. And I'm joined today by Jim Citrin, author of seven books, including The Career Playbook, Essential Advice for Today's Aspiring Young Professional. And he's also the leader of the CEO practice at global executive recruiting firm Spencer Stewart. Jim, let's say a recent college grad comes up to you and says, what can I do on my first day at my first job to set myself up for success? What do you tell that person? Well, Sharon, first, I'm so pleased to be able to join you on this podcast. This is a topic I'm passionate about, as you know. Uh, That is not a theoretical question. I get that question all the time from new college grads. I get it from my daughter who just graduated six months ago from nephews and nieces, as well as new uh, employees of our firm, Spencer Stewart. And in some ways, the advice that I'll give right here is not that different than the advice I give to chief executive officers who we place in the top jobs. I'd say that there are a few things that are absolutely must-dos for new 
grad starting jobs. And some of it is so simple and it almost sounds trite, but trust me, it's the kind of the most important message is that your attitude is everything. And it's sort of that like that old expression that I don't people don't remember exactly what you say, but people remember how you make people feel. And so when you're starting in the first day, in the first week, in the first month, how you conduct yourself is all about how you make others around you feel. So it's totally in your control to come in with a super positive attitude. And it's not talking too much and it's not being so outgoing and bubbly to be annoying, but it's genuinely to be friendly, to be positive, to be enthusiastic. Certain little things in the first week or two weeks where new impressions are being made, get in a little extra early, stay a little extra late, dress just 10 or 20% more formally than whatever is the dress code convention in the organization. And then that shows a spirit of respect and, uh, and presence. In addition, in your first days, weeks, even months, or even the first year, every person that you meet with, introduce yourself. Even if you've met them three or four times, say, hi, I'm Jim. I just started. I just graduated from Wesleyan University. I'm so pleased to be here at this company. And if you say that three or four or five times, people will remember your names. And they, people, the more senior people, after they've met, many people are bad at remembering names, and they then become embarrassed, and then these walls go. So take that off the table introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Sharon, and all of that. So those are just a few first super concrete ways to get off to a great start. Let's consider how to build professional relationships on the job. Here is Cece Mitova, class of 2015, speaking about her experience starting her career in finance. A lot of times your boss will come around and say, this is what I want to do, do it this way. Um, but I mean, it takes, I guess it takes a little bit of compromise, obviously, and getting used to. Um, I think being able to have a positive attitude has helped a lot with that and always kind of smiling and saying, oh, you know, I'll actually learn a lot from this. Obviously, my boss has quite a lot more experience than I do. If they're saying it, I should do it this way, that probably makes more sense. Let me figure out why. Um, also, a lot of times I find what's really helpful for me is just kind of catch people when they have a couple extra minutes um, and ask them to explain stuff. I think that's kind of kept kept me really interested in my job, which at a junior level could get quite tedious, um, but obviously kind of more senior people at the firm really just look at the bigger picture. And I, for the past couple of years, I've really been trying to understand what is the picture that they look at and um, learn a little bit more about from them um, because they have so much experience. So I think in a way, obviously, as you kind of also join any firm, um, you kind of make friends and kind of align yourself with certain people. So I think, again, being social and um, kind of having a smile and positive attitude really helps with that um, because then you tend to be more likable. People want to work with you. They give you better projects, um, respect you better, give you better reviews, um, and then everything just kind of rolls from there. Jim, to what extent should building these relationships be the responsibility of the new employee versus the people they're working with? It should ideally be both. Great companies are built on training, development, a culture of possibility, 
mentorship and even in the best cases, apprenticeship. Uh, and that's what you what we all want. But I think it's a good it's a good way to be to assume none of that. To, if you're the new grad, assume that it's on you to create the conditions that want to have people invest time in you. And simple things like reminding them of your name, telling them where you went to school, tell them what you're interested in, not too much, but over time, then, and having a spirit of how can I help uh, really, really uh, is a way to foster people uh, and their attention to want to invest in you. So it almost sounds as though you need to continue answering the question, tell me about yourself, that classic interview question, over and over again for a while as people get to know you. It's true. And, and never assume that people will remember you. And honestly, when you do get remembered, uh, it's a massive breakthrough. And say, like, oh, yes, Jackie from Middlebury, she's she's awesome, you know, whatever it is. But it takes like five times uh to do that. And, and a nice way to do that also is, again, you have to not overdo it. Uh, but if you can try and talk to others around the organization to figure out what someone is interested in, if someone's an opera buff and you like opera, it's like, say, oh, I understand you love the opera. Or it's like, oh, I know, I know you love the Olympics. You know, wasn't Pyeongchang incredible? Finding a couple of little common touch points uh, on popular culture, or it's like, oh, I'm a Homeland fanatic also, whatever it is, that helps the, the uh, relationship building. But then the most important thing, let's not forget what we're really talking about. The most important thing is doing really good work right from the start. People coming out of great schools like Wesleyan and others, you'll get, you'll, you'll have, you'll, the work that you've done in college and university will be much more intellectual, will be much more stimulating and challenging. And the, the critical work, if you've done a thesis or a research paper or if you've done lab work, the tasks that, that most entry-level employees do in the first months and even the first couple of years in many ways are quite mundane. And it's really easy to figure well, that's really below me. And if you fall into that trap and take that attitude and do a lousy job, then you will not have the access to the important things. Zach Mintz, class of 2015, also in finance, spoke to this as well. It's tough. Um, I'd say your first year of a tremendous amount of autonomy. Um, you definitely have to pay your dues. But you know, I think that's the same in anything. And I think anything you want to be successful in, um, you really have to grind out and, and work really hard. Uh, what I like to tell people is kind of like finals week, uh, except almost on a, a daily basis. Let me actually share an example of this. Meg Whitman. Meg Whitman, the amazing, uh, famous leader of eBay for many years and an unsuccessful run as the governor of California. Then she became chief executive officer of Hewlett Packard. Did an amazing job. They split HP into two. She just retired from HP, and she just reinvented herself uh, in the recent couple of months to become the CEO of, of a company in Los Angeles called New TV, founded by Jeffrey Katzenberg, the creator of DreamWorks. Meg said this incredible story. She started, uh, she started her first job was at Procter & Gamble, 
and a great undergraduate degree and a business school degree and all this. And her first job was uh, a research assignment on how to how large to create the hole in the shampoo bottle in Prell or whatever the P&G shampoo was. And she got the assignment. She had a week to go and do do come back with a recommendation of what the diameter of the hole in the shampoo bottle should be. And she went off and she shared it in confidence that she found that a humiliating job. I'm a graduate. You know, I've done all this high-level work. What a dumb assignment. And she said to me that she called her mother to kind of to complain about it. And her mother gave her great parental advice that hopefully all of our, you know, all of we would give or your parents would give to our listeners. And and her mom said, Meg, don't be a brat. Don't be a snob. Figure it out. They're obviously asking you for a reason. Do a good job. So she had an attitude adjustment and she went and talked to very senior people. She did look at customer research. She talked to some customers and what she came, came to the conclusion and she presented this in a really well memo, well written memo that said, well, on the surface, it's a very simple question because if the question is, how do, what do consumers want? Well, consumers want a pretty wide hole in the shampoo bottle because it gets it easy to get the shampoo out. Um, and then she said, but from a production point of view, if it's too wide, then it goes out too fast. But if it's too narrow, then then people keep the shampoo on their shelf in the shower longer. So it can be a range of different things. And she presented all that analysis as a much more sophisticated question, well-researched, well-written. And she said that was her first assignment, and she did it really well, and that led to other good things. So you also have to be aware that what you're being asked to do in your early days, even at the surface, it might look like a really shallow or dumb assignment, um, but it might have something more behind it, even if it doesn't have that challenge that Meg had, uh, how does she think? How does she think beyond the obvious? Even if it is quite a mundane task, doing a high-quality piece of work, doing it consistently with responsiveness and a good attitude will lead to then more interesting work down, down the road in a number of weeks or months. That's a great story. And it sounds to me like one of the other things that may have been going on there is that she recognized that she didn't know what she didn't know. So in other words, it does seem like an easy thing that you could just come up with an answer and people would believe you. But she chose to say, well, maybe I don't know how big the opening of the shampoo bottle should be. Let's research what it would mean to have this opening size versus that opening size. It's a great point. And and who, hopefully she would have figured that out. But again, kudos to uh, to Meg's mom for getting her to think beyond the obvious. But it is really worth pausing when you're asked to do something to ask uh, why or and, and do that from the point of view, not to be challenging, but to say, even if something seems mundane, it'd be really useful for me to understand how this task fits into the broader objectives. And I just like to learn the broader stuff and know how my small piece fits in. That shows uh, an interest, it shows a curiosity, and you'll actually do a much better job in the mundane task. And then that'll lead to how that fits in and broader things as well. 
Now, how about the opposite problem? I know that one of the issues that often comes up on elite college campuses, and then we see it again when our students graduate and enter the work world, is the imposter syndrome. So in other words, they feel like they're faking it. They don't really know what they're doing. And at what point do you just have to fake it till you make it or recognize that you do, in fact, have something to contribute versus admitting what you don't know? How do you recommend that people navigate that imposter syndrome? Uh, first of all, I think it's, uh, I think it's a, a false assumption that you feel that you have to know something. Even at the highest levels of leadership, it's actually a sign of strength to say, can you help me understand this? And especially at the early days to ask, asking questions and listening carefully, not multitasking, getting the information and genuinely learning. You don't have to ask from your direct boss every time. You can get that, ask a question, a clarifying question, but then go to a peer, go to an executive assistant, go to someone else and say, I've been asked to do this. Can you give me an, a little insight into what this means? But basically have, you know, one of the great things of, of great, particularly liberal arts graduates is the ability to learn. We talk about that, and that's the premise that many liberal arts students are hired into the workforce. Use that. Hazal Mutar, class of 2014, who began her career with you, Jim, at Spencer Stewart before moving to LinkedIn, commented on this as well. Learning to be good learners is the number one thing that I had to learn, and I recommend this to everyone coming out of college or currently in the workforce, because that is the skill that will set you apart. Um, when I joined this team at LinkedIn, I didn't come from a traditional background for them. I was coming from a recruitment firm, and I was coming into, yes, a talent company, but LinkedIn is a data company, and I was coming into a very technical data analyst role where I had to do stakeholder management and go into client meetings, and I didn't have any of those experiences. But the skills that I built doing my side projects or going to coding classes and just framing myself in a way that convinced them that I'm capable to do this job helped me get this job. And I am confident that when I look for my next player, like even just internally, what will help me grow is my will be my ability to pick up those different things and constantly change um, what I bring to the table. So I really believe in that, and I highly recommend that. Read a lot. Um, expose yourself to what's happening across industries, not just in your industry. Go to lots of events. Talk to lots of people. Talk to lots of entrepreneurs. I'm not an entrepreneur, but there's so much you learn from how they think about things and the tools they use and that, like, I guess, like, eager for innovation. And um, I find that truly inspiring. Um, so things like that have helped me a lot. Be the learner. Ask good questions. And... You don't have to have all the answers right up front, but I don't think not knowing should make someone feel like an imposter. I think you need to, to uh, have the confidence to just say, can you help me understand what that means or how does this fit into that? Or, okay, here's what I, I've learned, but I don't quite get that. And I think asking questions is actually a sign of strength as opposed to uh, feeling uh, that you're, imposed in, that you're uh, pretending anything. Well, I think sometimes that feeling that people are faking it also 
bleeds over into the issue of their trying to develop their professional networks, not just internally in their new organizations, but externally as well. Could you speak a little bit about the importance of building professional relationships in your industry? One of the unique aspects to jobs in the 2010s and the 2020s and going forward is that everyone is going to have lots of jobs. Uh, the structure of careers is changing, as everyone knows. You're, not, you're going to have listeners are probably going to have between 10 and 20 or more different jobs over the course of their career. And how you get one is vastly, uh, uh, the, the vast proclivity is to be recommended. So just in terms of getting jobs down the road, it's going to be from people who you know or people who know you or one degree of separation beyond that. The principle of both learning and having great positive uh, experiences uh, with relationships much less getting jobs down the road, will come from the professional relationships that you build over time. And it's never too early to start. Several alumni I spoke with said the same thing. It's been an, an unbelievably lucky trajectory, I would say. I would say it's about 10% my skill set and 90% luck. Um, so I have been like super lucky and grateful and... Um, I think it's a, a weird path, but not necessarily an uncommon one, I think, when you find connections that work and that like you, things do happen. But the weird thing about entertainment is that it's so not merit-based, and so much of it is just being in the right place at the right time and having people who are personally invested in, in your success. That was Johnny Lezebnik, class of 2016, a TV writer. I also heard from Alton Wang, also class of 2016, an activist for the Asian American community. So, you know, my second year, I started building a lot more relationships and connections. And I think one thing that, you know, is underutilized, and I know the Career Center always says this, is our alumni network, right? I eventually, because I was able to be a student representative to the Board of Trustees um, at, when I was on the WSA and, you know, engaging some of our alumni of color, I was able to really uh, meet people who are in the field that I wanted to end up going into, and they exposed me to this entire world um, that I didn't know before. You know, one example that I always give um, is Daphne Kwok, who um, was a former uh, member of the Board of Trustees for Chair of the Alumni Association, and, you know, when she was at Wesleyan, was heavily involved in the issues I was involved in. And so when I first met her um, at Wesleyan, she really, you know, said, if you're interested in this work, you really need to come to D.C. You need to do these internships. And she um, pointed me in the right direction. So to this day, I, I always joke with her that I blame her that she's the one who dragged me into this world. But I'm also really grateful, obviously, because, you know, I wouldn't have known about the opportunities that existed if it wasn't for an alumni like her. Cece Mitova also spoke to this. Yes, one thing actually I don't think I've mentioned or stressed enough is finding mentors. And I think that's, that's been so important to me. Um, and it could be, I guess it could be, I mean, it could be your parents, it could be um, other West alums, it could be like the employer. But I think what really helped me, actually this I learned from the Career Center and from you and Rachel, is, um, and it goes, it goes back to kind of being social, but really reaching out to people and asking for advice. 
Um, and that's something obviously most people um, learn doing their like throughout the internship and just looking for internships. But I think it's always it's so helpful to just email people or like call them and say, oh, I, I see you do this and this. Can you just please give me some advice? I want to go into this industry or I want to work on this project. Um, and that's, I guess, having those mentors is extremely helpful um, in any shape or form. I think when I had to move to our London office, I mean, I called so many people I used to work with from New York and said, oh, um, do you guys have an opening? Can I come join your team? This sounds really cool. Um, and in general, for any, I guess, any bigger career advice, I always go back to my mentors. And I, I actually have, so um, currently where I work, I have quite a lot of Wesleyan mentors, and I'm extremely lucky because I can go check in with them and say, here's what I'm thinking. Should I go join this team? Should I go do this? Do you think this project will be good for me? And then people can give you kind of better, kind of bigger perspective. Oh, this will be good for your long-term career. Oh, this might not be so good. Um, and I think that's been extremely helpful um, to be successful. And I think it is in general. I mean, even like life decisions, I think it's really good to just run things by other people and get their perspective. How important is it to have a formal mentor? Let's say you work for an organization that does not have a formal mentorship program, and it's something that you're going to have to find on your own. How important is it, and how should someone go about it? Some companies uh, have very effective mentorship programs, but in my experience, uh, mentorship is something that is more effective when it's a little bit more organic and natural. And uh, I think mentorship is uh, something to be kind of earned uh, as opposed to be uh, bequeathed. Uh, and I do think it's in the role, it's in the responsibility of the individual to cultivate mentors rather than expect to be assigned them. Uh, the, the, what mentors, many many senior people really love mentoring, and it, I've surveyed many, and there's a whole section in the career playbook, which I uh, advise people read on this topic of how to cultivate a mentor. I've surveyed hundreds of senior executives, every single one of them give themselves high marks for being a mentor. But when you talk to thousands of, uh, of workers in their 20s, only like 30% say that they have effective mentor relationships. So there's a big perception gap uh, in, in that. And mentors, uh, they, they invest, think of them as investing in your success. Well, why would they do that? A, because they you know, they feel like that's a good thing to do for the organization. But actually mentors mentor for a more personal reason. They actually see something of themselves in you. They actually felt like they had a great mentor and they want to give back, but who they choose to do that is a function of someone who they think is going to be a star. So it's sort of like uh, the political process. Leading candidates are better able to raise money. Why? Because funders think that they're going to be leading candidates. It's the same thing with mentors saying, oh, I'll mentor Kate. She's a superstar and I really like her. So I'll spend time with her or, or uh, you know, Dustin, he's like fantastic. And, you know, we both love tennis and, and yet he like takes that and goes, goes forward. So a little shared interest, but it's really about uh, mentors believing that they're going to get a return on that by your success and, and not overdoing it. But I would do it uh, – again, I write this in the career playbook. 
never ask the question, will you be my mentor? That's like a real downer. Uh, it, it's, it's more, it's better to ask a much more specific question. It's like, hey, uh, I saw your presentation. Can I ask you one follow-up question about that? Or, hey, I know you worked uh, in Indonesia earlier in your career. I'm really, I studied Indonesia in my history class. What, what would be the best way to get an international assignment? So asking a very specific question and then generalizing from there is also a great way to start a mentor uh, relationship that could grow into a mentorship. One of the things that students coming right out of college, and I would argue in particular small liberal arts colleges like Wesleyan, often wonder is whether they can really make a difference in the world and find meaning through private sector employment. Let's hear from an alumna who has navigated that. Camila Ricaldi, class of 2016, was an American studies major who now works for a marketing agency in New York. I definitely really love where I am right now, and I'm thinking even about um, ways to make cultural impact, whether it's through academic work or in, the, in particular in advertising and what I'm doing right now. And I think both are really important ways to make cultural impact with new ideas, thought-provoking ideas, new ways to think about the things around you, um, except what I'm realizing now is that in a capitalist landscape where everyone is inundated with advertisements, advertising for me is the way that I see ideas getting spreaded uh, virally, and it's how it's how we're like we are in culture. It's what we see on a daily basis, and it, for me, it, it seems that like if I if if what I want to be doing is creating cultural impact and like what I'm doing right now, the work that I'm doing with YoPlay is creating um, more more feminist ads, ads that are encouraging people to think about moms and women differently than maybe me writing a thesis or me doing doing like really heavy intellectual work would totally be valuable, but not in the way that that has the immediate cultural impact that I think I would want. So for me, to answer that question in a long-winded way, I really love what I'm doing in advertising. I think it has um, access to, to cultural impact more so than what I would be doing in graduate schools and in, in academic in particular, in a particular path that way. Um, and I definitely want to be continuing what I'm doing. I'm lucky enough to be working in a place, a very, very particular agency that wants to diversify the creative class. They want, they have aims to make work that makes the world a better place. And whether it's selling cheeseburgers, like for me, I'm selling yogurt, but our ads, they make people in culture question what they've been thinking about and they question their assumptions. And yes, we're selling yogurt. And on top of that, we're making people think about moms differently. We have a whole campaign, Mom On, encouraging moms to, to do momming the way that they want. And so, we're making these ideas become spread quick, quicker and um, more widely than how they could be in a lot of other forms of disseminating information. Jim, could you speak a little bit to the topic of doing good within the private sector? It's a really important point. Um, I, I think one of the most encouraging things for the world uh, over the next 20 to 40 years is that uh, Young graduates today genuinely care more deeply about what they're doing, why they're doing it, what's the purpose of their work than uh, previous generations. And I think that's a really positive uh, dynamic. So 
on one level, most uh, college graduates, again, great liberal arts college graduates from schools like Wesleyan and others, uh, they're not going to choose to work for organizations that don't have a purpose that they can believe in or values that they are comfortable with. Uh, most would actually, many, many would rather do odd jobs and work at minimum wage than work for something that they're genuinely not comfortable with. So choosing an organization who's got values and a purpose, uh, which is something that you can believe in. Of course, that's easy to say, and yes, to work for the American Red Cross or to work for a biotech company or a pharma company or some other company, but can you find purpose working for a truly profit-driven company? Many people can, and try and find that. But then there's also the way to uh, to be a great citizen, a great uh, person who can, if you make a lot of money and have the uh, privilege to to go and share it, you don't have to make a ton. You can give money away right now to places you care about and give your time. So it doesn't. You don't. You can work for a company that is not necessarily obviously. Uh, the most purpose-driven thing, and it could be a financial services company, it could be a technology company, but the skills, the resources that you get from doing that, you can also deploy in philanthropy, in your time, in your mentorship. There are tons of ways to make the world a better place, and and it doesn't have to be working for a company who just by their very definition is dedicated to making the world a better place. Because there's often a trade-off, frankly. The mission, the, sometimes the more mission-driven the organization, uh, the less compensation, and that's fine. So you're donating your time and your passion, but you might be working for really very, very little compensation. So that's that's a constraint versus working for a company, making more compensation, and then getting skills that you can then deploy in other ways as well. Jim, any final words of wisdom to new college graduates today? I think it's a golden era of the liberal arts graduate who has curiosity, who has the ability and the confidence to ask great questions. The one thing that is absolutely in every single one of our control is your attitude. And not to sound like an old person or your your parent, but having a positive attitude, working hard, being super responsive, being respectful, but not meek. The way you conduct yourself with others is everything. Uh, being a learning animal and, and being curious and all of these basic things that hopefully a great liberal arts education has instilled is really what's going to differentiate you in the workforce. Jim Citron, author of The Career Playbook, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Sharon. Thank you. Enjoyed First Year Out? Subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review so others will find us. Still trying to figure out what to do after graduation? Check out our online course, Career Decisions from Insight to Impact, available on Coursera. First Year Out is produced by Sharon Belden Castingway. Our associate producer is Lynx Mitchell, Wesleyan class of 2018. Our music is Audio Binger's The Wake Up, available through a Creative Commons license on Free Music Archive. It's really hard.